I want to title today, Loving in a Hateful World. Loving in a Hateful World. And I'm going to give a narrative today, and it's going to be from Acts chapter 21 through Acts chapter 26. So don't scroll through all of them, but we're going to focus on just a couple of verses in the ending of Acts chapter 26, verses 24 through 29. I'm going to talk about Paul's witness here and how he loved a hateful world. Jesus made Paul to be a, a minister of the gospel. That was his purpose. That was his calling in his life. And that's what he would continue to do from the moment God opened his heart to him to the moment that God received him in glory. Paul was a faithful witness of the word. We're all called to be ministers of the truth in some way or another. Not just those of us that are behind a pulpit. It's all of us are called to be ministers and witnesses of the truth of Jesus Christ because you have Jesus Christ within you. He has opened your blind eyes to see His beauty. Tell people your story. Tell people the story how Jesus saved you. That's what Paul did through his life. When God knocked him off of his horse on the road to Damascus, from then on Paul told the story of Jesus opening his eyes to him. You be that minister in this dark and hateful world of the story of Jesus Christ in your life. But I want you to understand that at times you're going to be mocked for telling that story. There will be times where you be, will be scorned for telling that story. There will be times where you will be hated for telling the story of your salvation. So what are you to do as a witness when the world hates you? And as we go through this, I want to ask you three questions, and I'm going to ask them again at the end. But I want you to think through. The first question is this. How should you respond in the face of criticism and hate? How should you respond in the face of criticism and hate? Number two, what is the message you want the mockers to hear? What is the message you want the mockers to hear? And number three, what is your true heart's desire for those attacking you? What is your true heart's desire for those attacking you? So before we get into Paul's testimony before Agrippa and Festus and Beatrice, we need to give, we need to give the background of how he got there because it's very, very important to understanding Paul's temperament Paul's motivation and Paul's heart when he goes before these three to give testimony. The story starts in Acts chapter 21 where Paul had been traveling on his missionary journeys. He comes back to the church in Jerusalem to give a report of his travels. And as he's at the church of Jerusalem, they tell him that there are many that hate him in Jerusalem now. They're seeking his blood. Paul does not hate the Jewish people in the synagogue. He still has a heart for them. He even says that he prays in Romans chapter 10, he prays that all of Israel would come to see God. He still has a heart for these people. So in order to appease them at this moment, 
uh, he is advised by the elders in Jerusalem to take him and four other men, and I believe that they were probably under the vow of a Nazarite at this time, and they were to go purify themselves in the temple. To go purify themselves and present themselves before the priest in the temple. Well, earlier in that week, Paul had an Ephesian named Tromiphus with him in the city. But he did not take him into the synagogue with him. However, the Pharisees in the synagogue saw Paul and automatically thought that he had brought a Gentile into the synagogue and they got angry. So angry, in fact, that they drug him out for the purpose of killing him in the streets. Well, the Roman commander there uh, is called, and he is called to come and uh, respond to this attack to get some peace going. Um, I have his name. I can't find it. It's a Roman name. That should suffice for now. But he's called to come and and, uh, take Paul away. So he grabs Paul, and he starts dragging him away. The mob is crashing after them. This is all in chapter 21 right now. He takes Paul, and Paul talks to him and says, Hey, may, may I be allowed to speak? And he looks around and he says, Do you speak Greek? Aren't you the, uh, the Egyptian that was caused in a ruckus a few years ago? And Paul says, No, I, I am a, a Hebrew. And he says, Then speak. So in chapter 22, Paul stands on the steps where the Roman um, commander of the a garrison there has taken him. And he raises his hand and the people silence. And Paul begins to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue. But when he begins to speak to them in Hebrew, they get completely silent. And they start listening to what Paul is saying. So Paul starts to give his testimony of what God had done for him. He simply told what God had done in his life. He went through the story of the road to Damascus. How God had knocked him from his horse and down on the ground. And how God had spoken to him. And God had given him a commission. How God had changed him from the murderous zealot that he was to a minister of the gospel. And he went through this testimony. And it angered the Jews so much that they started calling again for him to be killed. All for telling what God did in his life. We may face those times where just giving your testimony is going to draw hate. Well, at that point, the Roman doesn't know what to do, so he just takes Paul inside and he's going to whip him. He's going to scourge him and get to the bottom of whatever this ruckus is. Well, as they're laying Paul down to start whipping him, he says, is it lawful for you to whip a Roman citizen? Whoa, they got scared all of a sudden. They back up. They go to the commander like, this guy's a Roman. He's a Jew. He's a Roman. I don't know what to do. So the Roman commander comes to him. He's like, I bought my citizenship with a lot of money. How are you a Roman? He's like, I was a Roman by birth. Oh, man, this guy's really in trouble now. This commander doesn't want to touch him. But he doesn't know what to do because he's in the Roman commander of a place full of Jews who want this one guy dead. Well, if he doesn't kill him, he's going to have anarchy on his hands. If he does whip him, he's in trouble because it's a Roman who had done nothing wrong. Uh, He's in a conundrum, doesn't know what to do. So finally he says, you know what? Get your chief priest and your council and have them all come here to my garrison. And I want to hear what's really going on. Well, in Acts chapter 23, they arrive... And Paul begins to speak in Acts chapter 23. And he doesn't even get hardly a line out of his mouth. He says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's the one line Paul said. And Ananias, who is the high priest, commands him to be struck in the face. So they strike Paul in the face. 
And Paul pops off at whoever gave the command. is like, how are you telling them to strike me all of a sudden? But what's important to know about Paul is Paul had respect for the law. He had respect for God's order. And he still had respect for the high priest in the temple. Paul didn't realize who had told him to be slapped. So they respond in kind with, how dare you talk to the high priest in such a way? Paul honestly didn't know that it was the high priest that had commanded him to be struck. So he apologizes. After they hit him for no good reason, all he said was, I have stood before God and men with a good conscience. And they hit him in the face. And his response is, I am sorry I offended the high priest. Man, how, how are we going to respond when people are really hating you for no good reason? Is it to be like Paul or is it to be like, Boy, you got one coming to you, tell you to slap me? Or is it to honestly say, I am sorry for my offense? Paul genuinely was. He did not mean to offend the high priest. Well, Paul then sees something because he's a wise man. Now, one thing that you need to always notice about Paul, he doesn't try to get himself into trouble. As a Christian, sometimes we welcome the trouble. Sometimes we actually go looking for it. And sometimes we start poking people till we get in trouble with them. Paul wasn't a troublemaker and he wasn't looking for trouble. Paul was preaching God's word. But Paul always preached God's word in a loving way with a heart for the hearer of that word. Paul was not trying to out-argue the smartest person he could find. Paul was not trying to sound like the most brilliant man, which he was a brilliant man, a very well-learned man, a very educated man. That was not Paul's goal. It was so that the hearer would see Jesus. That was always Paul's goal. But Paul was also very smart and wise. So he looks in the temple around him and he sees that there are Pharisees, and there are Sadducees. Now, some of you brothers that were there yesterday heard part of this sermon from Brother Timothy. So, we needed to hear it twice, and it's for those that didn't get to hear it. So, he sees that there's Pharisees and Sadducees there. And he's smart, and he says, All I said was that Christ was raised from the dead. That's all it took. No, the Sadducees, there's no, there's no raising from the dead. The Pharisees, yes, there is. Now, all of a sudden, they forget they're fighting about Paul, and they're fighting with each other over who was, whether someone was even raised from the dead or not. So Paul was a very wise man in that. Well, the commander sees this is going nowhere. I'm taking Paul back with me and getting out, him out of this temple. And he takes him away and he puts him back in his prison to hold him to try to figure out what to do. Now, when this happens, something very important happens to Paul. And it explains why Paul does what he does in the face of all adversity. In chapter 23, verse 11, And that night following, after this ruckus in the temple, where he'd been slapped for no reason, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been pitted against one another, the Romans don't know what to do with him, so they just lock him back in the castle. Verse 11, And that night following, that night following the Lord stood by him and said, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. That's very telling about what's about to happen to Paul. Paul, just as you have been a witness here in Jerusalem, a place that hates you, 
a place that has sought to kill you for no reason, so Paul, in that same way, in the face of hate for giving your testimony, so I want you to go to Rome and give this same testimony. Well, there's a conspiracy to kill Paul at this point. Paul's nephew finds out about the conspiracy. He goes and tells Paul, and Paul sends him to the uh, Roman commander. And there was a vow of men of the synagogue that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Well, that, the Roman commander doesn't want a Roman citizen getting killed on his watch. So he has a large garrison. It's hundreds of men, some with spears, some on horses, some on foot, to take Paul by night to take him and, and take him to uh, Felix, the governor of this region. Now, at, at this time in Judea, it is broken up into a bunch of little countries. They're not just one big king over Judea anymore. The Romans had come in and just taken bits and pieces and bits and pieces, and they had this myriad of puppet kings everywhere. So in this reason of Caesarea that Jerusalem fell in, there is a king uh, whose name was Felix, and that's where Paul is being sent. So they take him to Felix, and then we get to ver uh, chapter 24. Claudius Lysias, I knew I'd find that name. It was Roman sounding. I wanted to just say it. So he comes to, uh, he comes to Felix with a large military presence, and now we're in chapter 24 of the book of Acts. So now Paul is brought before this king named Felix. Uh, Felix is a, um, married to someone that we must know of. Her name is Drusilla. Drusilla is very important in the story too. She is the sister of a man named Agrippa and the sister of a woman named Beatrice. What's important about these three is that they are of the house of the lineage of Herod. Herod the Great, who had, to tr who had tried to have Jesus killed. And their uncle was the man who had John the Baptist beheaded. So they come from a long line of political Jewish rulers. Now some people have been mistaken that Agrippa was not Jewish. He was. He was a puppet king though. He didn't love the Lord and he didn't love the temple and he didn't love the laws. He loved his life above all things else. But Agrippa... Drusilla and Beatrice were very well versed in all things Jewish, in all things of the temple, in all things of the law. They had to be as rulers. So Felix is married to Drusilla. Paul comes before them, and Ananias comes back to speak, and he brings with him Tertullus, who is the synagogue's lawyer. And boy, they're about to nail Paul. They got a lawyer coming with them this time. He's going down. They're tired of the Romans just taking him back. They want to kill him, for sure. So then again, Paul begins to defend himself. And he, his defense is that he's done nothing against mankind. He has simply told his story. He has simply told the story of Jesus Christ. He has simply told the story of what God had done for him, but he's caused no ruckus. Well, Felix gets a little bit interested in this story. So he uh, decides that he's going to hear Paul again. He says, let's send you away and I'm going to bring you back. Well, eventually Ananias and Tertullus go back to the temple because Felix ends up keeping Paul in his castle for two years. Two years. Now, Paul had only been in Jerusalem for one week to give a report when he is dragged away, falsely accused, slapped in the face, drugged back and forth, and now he is held in this prison for two years. And here's what ends up happening. 
Felix and Drusilla come back over and over and over again asking Paul questions. Continually asking questions. Paul continues to witness. In the end, all Felix wanted was money. He knew that the churches were providing for Paul. And it even says in the end, I believe, of chapter 24, but after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews pleasure, left Paul in bond. But the verse before that, he was hoping that money should have been given him of Paul that he might lose him. He was extorting Paul. I'm going to keep you for no reason in this Roman prison until you pay your way out. But Paul had a message. And Paul was willing even to witness to this corrupt Felix and his corrupt wife Drusilla for two years, even with it going nowhere. And all he wanted was money. Well, as the governors of Rome come and go, two years later, a new one comes in. This man's name is Portius Festus. So he comes in, and we go to chapter 25. Well, Festus, willing to make, wanting to make a, a good impression upon the new region that he's just come to command, he doesn't want to come to this area and make all the Jews mad right away by letting him go. So he says, how about this, Paul? Why don't you come back to Jerusalem with me, and let's go hear this case again in Jerusalem with the high priest. And Paul says, no, I am before Caesar's court, and to Caesar I appeal. Now that was two things. One, it was smart of Paul because he was never going to win with the synagogue. But two, Paul was following God's direction that, Paul, that God had given to him in the prison when he was laying there for two years when God came and stood by his side and says, you must witness in Rome. Well, this is how Paul ends up witnessing in Rome. He appeals to Caesar. Now as a Roman citizen, when he appeals to Caesar... They have to end up sending him to Caesar. But Felix is not going to just send a man to Caesar and say, here's a guy that caused a little bit of trouble in some annoying region called Jerusalem. He wants to talk to you. No, Felix wants to hear his case first because he, as you will hear later with Agrippa, wants to write a good report of what they're actually sending this man to Rome to be tried for. So... Uh, Festus is going to end up having a trial. But in that meantime, King Herod Agrippa and his sister Beatrice come to welcome in the new ruler of that region, Festus. Now Herod, the lineage of Herod, had always ruled this region. But as time had gone on, they were pushed aside here and pushed aside there. Now Herod is ruling just a small place of Macedonia and a couple of other towns. and That's all Herod has in his kingship. He's a puppet king. But he brings his sister Beatrice. Now Her uh, Agrippa is known um, through historical records as very well versed in the Jewish law. Very up to speed on what it is and what is right and what is wrong. Like I said, these, these rulers weren't, they were, they were smart men. They could figure things out. They knew, what it took to take, they knew what it took to stay in power. So he knew what it took to rule in that type of region. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, Agrippa and Bernice. I may have said it wrong earlier. I think I said Beatrice. It's Bernice. But I want to talk a little bit about those two because it matters later on in chapter 26 when, they're talking, when Paul is talking before them who these people are that he's talking to. King Agrippa was the son of Herod Agrippa. Herod, his father, King Agrippa's father, had killed James, the brother 
of John in Acts chapter 12. When he saw that that was successful, this man's father, when he saw that that was successful, he went and got Peter and locked him up in prison and was about to kill him. He was on a rampage to go kill the apostles. Well, this is that time where Peter's locked in the prison. The angel of the Lord wakes him up. Peter's able to escape and he goes to the house where they're praying for him and Rhoda opens the door and their prayers are answered. Well, this is Agrippa's father that had done that. Well, their uncle, who was also of the Herod lineage, had John the Baptist beheaded. And at the head of all that lineage was Herod the Great. This is his great-grandfather. King Agrippa's great-grandfather was the same Herod who killed all the babies of the Israelites, hoping to kill the coming king. This is that family. They're a despised family of some Jewish people. They were horrible people. Now you bring in his sister Bernice. She was married to another king at one point and he died. So she went and married another one. But she left him to go be in an inappropriate way with her brother. So you have this disgusting relationship from these disgusting corrupt people coming to judge a godly man. These are the people that Paul is testifying before in his trial. A Roman pagan who has no care of the things of God. A corrupt Jewish king who his whole family has tried to kill the way. They have tried to kill the followers of Christ even before Jesus was born. This lineage was trying to kill him. And his corrupt sister living in an immoral way in his castle. These are the people that Paul is standing before. Now I wanted to take the time to tell those descriptions of them because it's a bit disgusting and it's a bit troubling. But then they are going to seat themselves in front of Paul and have him come and give testimony before them. So in chapter 26, Paul comes and he's going to give testimony. King Agrippa, King Festus gives Agrippa uh, some prominence here because he knows that he knows a lot more about Paul and what's going on in this Jewish region than he does. So he asked him to sit with him. Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak. So Paul is beginning to speak and he begins to give his testimony. Now all Paul does as he talks to Agrippa that the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is his testimony. And he begins to expound on what that means because Felix doesn't understand exactly what he means. So he begins to expound upon what are these prophecies that the Messiah should come that he would suffer and die and that he would be raised from the dead. That is Paul's message here. He didn't go on a long, long sermon like he's done before. It is simply that Jesus, the Messiah, has come, suffered, died, and has risen again. And all of a sudden, this Roman governor Festus blurts out, You're a nut! Paul, you're crazy! You know what? You're so smart, you're crazy. All this learning you've been doing... All the schooling you've been doing, it's made you a nut. Now, he wasn't being silly. He wasn't kidding around like, ah, you're crazy, Paul. He really meant it. Paul, you are legitimately insane that some Jew would come to save you, that he would get killed by the Romans, who we are, but he would conquer and rise again from the dead. You're an insane man, Paul. You're nuts. What are we to do 
in a hateful world like this, when we start telling this same story that people feel the exact same way about today, you are insane. What is wrong with you? You're crazy to think that some man died and rose from the dead and he's going to take you to paradise? You're an idiot. How do you respond? Because the truth of it is, people say that now. It's real. Now, we are blessed in our circles and in our church groups and in our friends to be with like-minded people who love the Lord and who love the story of the Lord. But I tell you, the world hates it. The world hates the story of a risen Savior. They hate it. Well, Paul responds to Festus with some truths that we'll get to in a moment, with kind words and truth. But then Paul appeals to Agrippa and his knowledge of the prophets. And Agrippa replies, and there's debate amongst many scholars and commentaries on how his reply was meant. But I believe that Agrippa replied in a very mocking manner of what Paul was saying. Paul appeals to Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, you know of the prophecies. You know what these prophecies say. And you know this to be true. And Agrippa's response is, Oh, you're almost going to make me a Christian. Agrippa didn't mean it. He was nowhere near being a Christian. He was like, Oh, Paul, you're going to convince me in this short time to be a Christian. Come on. And how does Paul respond? To someone who should have understood exactly what he was saying. To a man who was an authority of the same lineage and of the same people who knew the laws and the prophets, who knew better. But he mocks him. But Paul responds to him with love. Paul's testimony before these people was simply the truth of who Jesus Christ is. That was all. What Jesus had done for him. He was a murderous zealot who hunted the people of Christ down to imprison them and kill them. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew everything of the prophets and the law and he was zealous about it. And then God, whom he had persecuted, knocked him down, blinded him and spoke to him. And Paul's response to him is, Lord, what will you have me do? And immediately Paul went about doing what the Lord would have him to do. That was Paul's testimony. Is that offensive? Does it bother you that it happened to this man? That's what the world sees. You know why? The world hates the testimony of Jesus Christ because it takes away from the world and it shows Him high and lifted up. Mankind wants to be lifted up. We want to be magnified. I can be good enough without a Savior. I don't need a risen Jew to get me to paradise. What is wrong with the way that I live? What is wrong with how I live my life? That's what the world says. So when you come and you show them a different story, they're going to hate you for it. But remember, they hated him first. As Jesus told them would happen. 
they will hate you because they first hated me. But when people hate, they're usually not kind about it. It can get pretty visceral in some of these discussions. How do you, as a Christian, respond on Twitter to the mocking of you? How do you respond on Facebook or Instagram or whatever blog or forum or face-to-face when someone is hateful to you? Not just slighting you a bit. They hate you and they let you know it for the sake of your testimony. What is your response? Festus first responds to Paul with an insult in 26-24, telling him he's insane. You know, it was insane to Festus because he is of the world. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us. It's stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek, 1 Corinthians 1.23. But as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 will show you, the insanity is all on their side because the Spirit has opened your eyes to be wise. This is foolish speak to the world. Your testimony of Jesus Christ in your heart is foolishness to this world. And they will respond to you as a fool. How do you respond back when they treat you as a fool? Paul's testimony was under attack. You know, Paul was not shocked. He didn't get taken by goodness, this man called me insane. Paul calmly responded to his attacker. And I don't even know that he was offended by Festus. I think Paul was more concerned and hurting in his heart for Festus than anything else. Paul replied with a calmness. He replied with dignity to the charge of this Roman judge calling him an insane man. When we're attacked in this way, when we're charged with an error of being a fanatic, a crazy person, a zealot, being in a cult... The best thing we can do is to bear ourselves calmly, peacefully, keeping a good moral posture about yourself. Because this is when the dialogue can open at this point here. You have the opportunity at that very point to shut the door in their face by their response or to open it and welcome them in to hear about Jesus Christ some more. But if we respond in kind, in like manner to their response, it is an immediate shutting the door in their face. They will not hear you, Christian. If they respond hatefully and you respond hatefully, why would they think that you are not insane? Because you are just as they are. What new heart do you have? What light are you showing? What kind of salt are you talking about? You're acting just like me, Christian. Paul knew this. And he knew this conversation was not over. So he did not respond in kind. There's two things you need to do when you're attacked this way. First thing you need to do is you need to be well assured of your position and whether you truly are speaking the truth. Be well assured of your position and that you're speaking 
the truth. Because we are on the side of truth and soberness. As Paul says in these passages, that I am simply speaking the truth and soberness. Because it is a serious deal. This message is serious. Because if you do not believe in who God is, you will face a judgment and a wrath that you have no defense for, that you have no recourse for, that you will go before a righteous judge and you will be condemned eternally. It is serious business. It's sober business. This isn't a light message that Paul has. He, with every fiber of his being, wants their ears to open to hear his message. Not hear Paul speak, but hear the message of God in Paul's voice. He wants that for them. And so should we for the world that hates us. I don't want the world to burn. I don't want people to be eternally damned. I want them to see Jesus. The same Jesus who opened this dirty sinner and took out my disgusting heart. It gave me a clean heart and new eyes. If He can do it for me, He can do it for Festus. He can do it for Agrippa. He can do it for Vladimir Putin. No one is beyond the reach of this message. It is a sober business. So treat it soberly in your conversations, even when they respond with hate. Number two, be refu- you must refuse to be swayed by this abuse. Don't let it move you off of your firm foundation. Lovingly and calmly, but stand your ground for the truth. Do not let the truth be mocked. Do not let the truth be mocked. It is too valuable to be slighted by foolish minds and foolish mouths. Do not let the truth be mocked and trampled upon. Stand firm in it, but in a loving way. Martin Luther has a saying on the world calling you crazy. He says, the world esteems others as prudent so long as they are mad, and as mad when they cease to be mad and become wise. The world will always see you as insane and crazy for your message. But the world, the world needs to hear this message because you yourself were once a fool. You yourself were once the unwise. You yourself were once the lost. And you should have such a burning desire in you to show that message that opened you. You should want to show that to the world. Paul responds to Festus. Most noble Festus. The man, a Roman pagan, called him an insane man. And his response is most noble Festus. I'm just speaking truth and soberness, sir. That's all I'm doing, speaking the truth. Paul was living out the examples in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, for being persecuted falsely. 
and loving his enemy that persecuted him. Paul was living that out right then. And the further on in the Sermon on the Mount, in verses 13 through 16, Paul was letting his light shine, and he was being a savory salt in a tasteless world. He was being a shining light for Christ in a dark world in the midst of being mocked and scorned. Paul was loving his enemies as shown in Matthew 5, 43-47. He's being shown hate, contempt, mockery. But his desire and his response is this, to pray for them. Paul wants to pray for them. When Agrippa responds with a mocking tone, come on, you're going to make me be a Christian in this short amount of time? Get, get real, Paul. Paul's response to Agrippa is this. Let's turn to it. It's in chapter 26. Starting in verse 24. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself with much learning, doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth these things. Now talking to Agrippa. Agrippa knows these things. For the king knows these things before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. Here he's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew he rose from the dead. Agrippa was well aware of what happened in the regions he was around. Festus and Felix knew what was going on, but Agrippa knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead because the Jews and the rulers tried to have him killed again. They did not want the people to believe, but he knew. And Paul is telling them, Agrippa, you know, you know what I speak is true. King Agrippa, don't you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. And Agrippa says to Paul, Almost thou persuades me to be a Christian. And here's Paul's response to him. I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. Yes, Agrippa, I want you to be a Christian. And when everybody in this room hearing me, the three people on this panel, the corrupt woman, this false pagan king, this Jewish corrupt king, I want all of you to be as I am, except for these bonds. He's saying, I want, to, I want you to be in bonds to Christ, but not for Christ. Paul didn't want them to have to suffer as he suffered, but he wanted their eyes to be opened as his eyes were opened. Yes, Agrippa, that's exactly what I want. And I am praying that for you. To see God. To see Jesus Christ in your heart. That's my prayer for you, Agrippa. And for all that hear. How do we respond when we are mocked? How do we respond when we are scorned for the message of Jesus Christ? Is it to say, I love you and I'm praying for you and I want you to see the God that I know. Or is it to respond in kind with slights and mockery and making fun of? Paul was filled. Paul was filled with love and concern for them. 
How could Paul not be filled with love? He was the one that stood and had the coats thrown to his feet. As the prophet Stephen was stoned to death brutally. And all for giving the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they beat him to death with rocks. And in the midst of that, Stephen says, God, forgive them. Don't lay this on their charge. Paul was a part of that. How? How could he respond with hate to someone mocking him? When he had been there for the murder of Stephen. And saw the testimony of Stephen. Give them, Lord. Lay this not to their charge. Stephen loved his murderers as they were killing him. The same that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they murder the Son of God. And God asks for their forgiveness. I think that every one of those people that God asked, that Jesus asked God to forgive, were forgiven. I don't know how it happened. I don't see it in the scripture. But if Jesus asked his father to forgive those men, I believe the father will grant the wish of his son and those men would be forgiven. How can we not forgive and respond with love to those who just mock us and scorn us for our testimony? Paul pleaded with Agrippa as Agrippa said, oh, you're almost going to make me a Christian. You know, there's in reality no difference between the almost Christian and the not Christian. They are one and the same. To be almost with without Christ, to be almost with Christ is to be completely without Christ. To be almost with Christ, you are completely without him. Agrippa's taking this lightly. Ah, you're gonna make me a Christian soon. Oh, Agrippa, I need you to be an all-the-way Christian, and I'm praying that for you, Agrippa. Paul, Paul had a desire to reach this world, and so should we. Paul spoke to them with truth, in verse 25, with truth and soberness. And Paul responded to them with prayer, in verse 29. That should be... Our responses to those who mock and scorn our testimony of Christ. Now we're not all expected to go through the same trials that Paul went through. He had his own difficulties to surmount, dangers to front. The minister has theirs. The man and the woman and the child sitting in here today, you have the issues, the trials that you're going to face every day. But no matter what your trial is, no matter what your work is that you're to do, let it be done in the loving spirit that Paul here has. Knowing this, that you yourself were at one time alienated from this same Jesus Christ. You loved darkness rather than light. You were the world. But He has set you free because He is rich and abundant in His Mercy. So I ask you the three questions again. How should you respond in the face of criticism and hate? Respond with grace. 
What is the message? You want the mockers to hear. Give them the truth of Scripture and show them Jesus. Give them the truth. What is your true heart's desire for those attacking you? What does your heart want for them? Does your heart want to respond in kind? Does your heart wish ill upon them? I pray that our heart's response would be that they would be saved by the same love of God that you yourself were saved with. The same God that rescued you that your heart would desire for them to be rescued also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we...